I'll probably just lead off saying that I know I said last week that we would do part two of the message series today and finish it up, and yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Um, but I, I do, I am going to go on record saying we will finish it next week. That might not have even been a smart thing to do. But um, the, the reason why we're not going to finish today and we're going to finish next week is because I felt very strongly the Lord saying as I was preparing this uh, to, to slow it down. I heard him say that the first week when I thought I was going to preach it in one week. And he said, you need to slow yourself down a little bit and you need to really work through. Because here's the thing, when I preach a message, and some of you know this, I've told you this before, but I always have like an enormous amount more of material than what I probably deliver or what I preach. And most of that is because when I am studying the scriptures and I'm going to the word and I'm, I'm preaching truth to you, I, I'm going through the whole Bible. I was just talking to my brother-in-law about this yesterday. I'm going through the whole Bible and, and I'm just establishing these truths all throughout scripture. So I might have 10 or 20 different verses to solidify something that I'm talking about, but I'm, I'm maybe preaching one or two of those verses to you guys, right? And so there's always an enormous amount more of material, but I need that because that gets it in me. It helps me preach with authority because I know what I'm saying is truth, you know? Um, like if you say, hey, I'm not sure about that, typically I could say, well, let me give you like 15 other scriptures for what I just talked about. Seriously, you know? You're like, I'm just being serious, you know? So... Anyway, I felt the Lord say, kind of slow down and really work your way through this so that this is something that sinks in like significantly for people. Because the, the, the message series that I'm preaching is called A Blessed Nation. Uh, and the heart of this is to just wake the church up more than anything to say, look, our nation is a blessed nation. We know that. Um, but it's up to us to continue to lead the way in our generation yeah. so that we see God's hand stay upon this nation and we continue to be a blessed people. Um, and that's probably kind of where I'm going next week is the church's role in this. But really, the church is called to lead the way in the world, to be the hands and feet of Jesus leading the way and influencing culture. Yeah. We're supposed to be in the world, not of the world, yeah. right? It says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, but guess what? The church sways culture stronger because the power of Jesus is greater than the power of the enemy and so we can sway culture in the direction for Christ even in the midst of a force of an enemy trying to sway it the other way and so the church really does have to lead the way the church has to be ingrained in society um, in a way where all of the different parts of our culture of our society are being affected and impacted by the people who are the when I say the church I mean the people Right? Who are the church being the church outside the walls? We don't come to this building on Sundays and come inside these walls and do church and then leave and go not be the body of Christ. Like This is really just a strengthening ground. This is a building ground to go pour out what's been poured in. And so, uh, and so the church really is called to lead the way. And last week, just a quick summary of where we went. Um, I talked about some just biblical patterns and principles that you can see throughout Scripture of nations that are blessed, what that looks like, and when that blessing and that covering and that protection does and can start to lift. Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, that the righteousness, of an, uh, the righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. 
And so there's a, a corporate kind of righteousness that's implied here. And that means that when a nation is set on righteousness, set on right living, set on honoring God and letting God be the authority over society, much like our nation was founded and, and built upon in the very beginning, all biblical principles, when a nation reveres that, then there is a, an elevation, a lifting and exalting that God's hand and power begins to do. It's the same way in our lives when we honor God like that and He exalts us to influence, but there's a corporate application to it as well. And so I talked about how God wants to exalt a people. He wants to do that, which is amazing to me and blows my mind that God wants to lift nations. He wants to lift people up to places of influence to lead the way in the world and bring people to Him. Um, but there is also clear indication that that can shift and that that can change and that God's hand and his covering and his blessing can come off of a people. But it's not just some random thing. It happens whenever a people choose to turn away from God. And so we spoke a lot about in 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23, the story of King Josiah and how the, the law, the word of God, had basically been lost in society for several generations. No kings, no peoples, they weren't practicing the word of God, they weren't honoring it. And as a, So here's what happens, is that when the word of God gets ran out of society, let's make a correlation for a moment, is God really, is he being invited more into our society or is he being pushed out more? He's being pushed out more. We can look at the seven pillars of society and we can see this in several of those areas that the enemy's made major advancements. He's been ran out of government and he's been ran out of the education system in big ways over the last decade, right? And so when God is run out, when the word of God is pushed out of society, what happens is it opens the door for the enemy to start to come into these places and eventually what happens is people set up idols or nations set up idols. And when I say idols, I don't strictly just mean some carved wooden image that a bunch of people are sitting around a fire and doing seances to and worshiping this image. Like, that's a picture we see in the Bible. But an idol, by definition, is anything that takes our heart and takes precedence over God in our heart. It's anything that we put in place of where God is supposed to be. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. The Bible says in the, in the, book, in the law, in the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. This speaks to idols. It means nothing else has place over me in your life. And so when idols come in, they come in because the word of God has been ran out. You understand that? The strength and the security and the knowledge and the understanding begins to fade. And it happens over several generations. And then idols gradually begin to get set up. And once idols are set up and there's things that are, our worship is devoted to, let me just say this. We live in a time where education and intellectualism is being exalted to a place of idol worship. In my opinion, in society. I, I believe in education wholeheartedly, but I also believe that when it usurps the authority of God and the truth of God, then it becomes an idol, and we can begin to worship that. And so when that happens, the next layer down, the next thing that you start to see is immorality sets in. A, a people in a group begin to accept uh, things that are immoral according to what the Bible says, but not just like in a way where they do it and oh, we got away with it, but in a way where they think it's okay, where it actually, they think it's right. It says that, you know, uh, what, when people begin to think what's wrong is right and what's right is wrong, and they actually reverse the scale, they reverse it. And there's this very distorted view. So then once immorality begins to run rampant in a society, decay 
and deterioration happen. And so at some point, and I'm going to show you some things today that really are, to me, remarkable. Um, at some point, and at what stage in that process, from, you know, Word of God ran out, idols, immorality, and decay, at what point, you know, I'm not entirely sure, but the hand of God can come off. All right, and the hand of God represents the favor and the power and the blessing of God. He blesses with his righteous right hand. With his righteous right hand, he will uphold you. He will hold you up. And you want the hand of God on your life, trust me. You don't want it off of your life. And so there is a point where that can happen. So I'm going to have you open your Bible right now to the book of Psalms in chapter 74. And the psalmist is a guy named Asaph. You know, not all the psalms were written by David. Vast majority were. But the psalmist, Asaph, he's writing this psalm. And we're going to read a few verses, but if you read before and after this, it's pretty clear that it's speaking about when they are a people who are conquered by the Assyrians. We know that Israel was, had two major incursions where they were just overran. There was the Assyrian uh, incursion that occurred like in 700 and something B.C., uh, and then the Babylonians came through the southern part of Israel and crushed the rest of it in the 500-somethings B.C. And that resulted in what was known as the Babylonian captivity, where Israel was in captivity for 70 years and out of their homeland, the Temple of Solomon had been destroyed and you know, they, were, they were a mess. So um, this particular psalm, he's talking about, what, it's in the midst of what is beginning to happen or is happening with the Assyrian incursion, and they're, they're being overran. And so you're going to notice that this language, the psalmist is crying out, and he's looking around like, what's going on? Where are you, God? Like, Because they were a people used to God's hand being on them, and when enemies would come, then they would rise against their enemies, and they would prevail. Like This was what they knew. But there's something very different about the place God had in the culture. We know that when the Assyrians came in, they came in the northern region and conquered those northern parts and those people had already turned over to idol worship those kings had already started worshiping idols and building actual temples and places of worship on high mountains to a lot of idols and false gods so here's what it says in psalm 74 and i want you to pay particularly close attention to where that with the hand of god coming off um, and i'm going to read starting in verse 9 we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long, O oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? Take it out of your bosom and destroy them. So you can see that there is a clear indication here that God's hand is coming off of, or it, it seems to them like God's hand is coming off, and as a result, they're being overran by an enemy that they should be able to stand against. And, and that is a place where a nation, a culture, can get to, is when the hand of God starts to come off because of where they've advanced to in their ways, and literally that protection and that strengthening and that upholding that they've known for so long, they can look around and say, well, where is it now? Because they've willingly walked away from that. You understand? That's what that has resulted in. And so what I want to begin to open our eyes to to see is something the Bible speaks about many places, uh, a principle known as the remnant. 
Okay, the remnant. What is a remnant? It, it's basically like um, a, a small number of people or a percentage or a small percentage of anything that's remaining from what originally was. Um, some people might say, like, I have a remnant of hair left. Right? It's like, <laughs> it's a funny thing. Anyway, so like, it's a small amount of something that once was. And I want to show you, most importantly of anything, the behavior, the attitude, the heart, and the action of the remnant in times like this and what the results that occur are. Because we see later, after all of this happened, the Assyrian incursion and Babylonian captivity, Isaiah, even, Isaiah spoke about this in chapter 10. He said that the remnant of Israel will return. And they will return. Now there has a dual like uh, meaning in that it speaks towards the end times as well and we may get to that today but in this particular case it also speaks about them returning from captivity and coming back into their homeland it says they the remnant will return and so we know while in captivity that there was a lot of prayers and a lot of cries that were being lifted to God and for him to come back into their nation and be restored. And through a period of years and of crying out and of lamenting and of the remnant really calling upon God, God hears their prayers, hears their cries, and his hand comes back upon the nation and they're restored to the place that they were. So another part I want to show you is in the book of Genesis about this concept of the remnant. I'm going to go there. And this is in chapter 18. We all know about the city of Sodom. And this is the discussion or the um, conversation that God is having with Abraham before the destruction of Sodom. Let me say this. So Sodom, the city, had reached a point in its immorality and its iniquity that God had determined that now he would bring judgment upon that nation. Okay? Uh, and there is a, a principle, you may have heard me talk about this before, called the cup of iniquity. We see that earlier in Genesis in chapter 15 when God is talking to Abraham and he said the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so there's like a picture of a cup, if you will, of iniquity. And it's, I mean, it's a little bit mysterious, honestly, but the, the cup begins to fill. And as the sin of the people continues to fill and, and repentance and sorrow to God can can you know empty that cup and God forgives that sin washed that way but if that sin goes unrepented and it continues to fill and fill and fill and then it spills over eventually that cup is full then God's judgment is is brought upon that people and I would just say in our own lives that there's a similar pattern in the sense we cannot continue in sin for a long period of time and not repent of that sin and not expect consequences to come upon us as a result of that. God is always a good God, loving God, and He always has forgiveness for us, but there are consequences if that cup fills and, and we don't repent of that. And so that is where Sodom is at right now, is that their cup is full and God's determined it's, it's time to bring judgment. And Abraham has this really like um, interesting exchange. This conversation has always fascinated me in the Bible because we know that Abraham has a nephew who's living in Sodom. Now let me just say, he never should have been there to begin with. All right, he never should have went there. It said that he was drawn to this place when he and Abraham divided the land and Abraham let him go wherever he wanted. It said Lot cast his eyes upon Sodom and he was drawn to that. So he was kind of lured in to what was already happening there. And so, so Abraham's concerned about Lot. 
his nephew, and Lot has a wife, and he has some family members, and they're all there. And so there's this real interesting exchange between Abraham and God regarding what's going to happen with Sodom. So let's look at that starting in verse 20. So the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And then the men, there were three men that appeared to Abraham that were talking about this. And then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. By the way, those three men were angels, and one of them angels he actually calls Lord, which is interesting because that's another example of a theophany where it's a pre-incarnate Christ that appears because Abraham says he calls him Lord. So there's three of them, and the Lord is revealing his will to Abraham. So in verse 23, it says, Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. So let's pause for a second. So you see, like, it's almost like this negotiation. Here's what I want you to understand. Abraham's heart is pure here. Abraham's heart is in the right place. He doesn't want to see this judgment come upon people. And he doesn't want to see the innocent and the righteous suffer with the wicked. And so God says, okay, Abraham, because he's already determined, look, their cup is full. Judgment's coming, right? I'm just and I'm, I, I have to honor, I'm, I'm consistent. But, but Abraham says, if, he says to Abraham, if there's 50, I'll, I'll relent, okay, if there's 50 there. And I don't know about you guys if you have kids, but sometimes there's this little negotiation that our kids like to do too. Like, Dad, can we stay up for, for 30 more minutes tonight? I mean, no, not, you've been up late. Okay, Dad. What about 20 minutes, Dad? If, maybe if 20 minutes. Dad, if we're good tomorrow, maybe 10 more minutes. So, you know, anyway. So, <laughs> verse 26. No, verse 27. So then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose if there were five less than 50 righteous, would you destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. So I love those two verses because Abraham postures himself exactly the way we need to posture ourselves before a holy God. He's in humility. He says there, he says, look, in verse 27, I am but dust and ashes, and I take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. So he still comes to the Lord with his cry, but he knows, like, God is holy, and he is, and he is just but a man. So there's a humility about him that really postures him to be able to, you know, we, the Bible says that we come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain grace and mercy in our time of need. But it's only when we understand we approach a holy God and that we are men undeserving of that, that we can come and enter boldly that way. And Abraham is demonstrating that here. And so he says, okay, what, he, the reason he went from 50 to 45, and it doesn't necessarily go into all of these in the scriptures, but the implication, the inference, all right, that you pull from interpretation is that there weren't 50. They didn't exist. It wasn't there. So Abraham said, oh, okay, you know, I don't know if God just showed him that, if he just knew that or what. But he, somehow he backed it up and said, well, what about 45? What about 45? 
And then it just, just continues to go on and on and on. All right, I'll, I won't read through the rest of these verses. That ends in chapter 18 ends this way. But here's what happens. He says 45. And then he says, what about 40? And then he says, what about 30? What about 20? And God says every time, if there's 30, if there's 20, it gets all the way down to 10. If there's 10, and then Abraham stops. And then the Lord says, if there's 10, I'll spare the city. But we know that after chapter 18 ends, chapter 19 is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because there weren't even 10 righteous in the city. There weren't even 10. And so at some point, this, this cry is being heard, but there's not a strong enough presence of the people who are crying out to God here, right? There's, and God says, no, there's not even 10, and so the judgment happens. But here's the part you've got to understand, is that the righteous in the city were still spared. They were still saved. The angels that appeared, there were two angels that came in the city and met Lot, and they went in and they said, get your family and let's go. Get them all together. And this is really crazy because Lot, he goes, it says he went to his son-in-laws that married his daughters and said, hey, let's go. And they didn't even believe him. It says that they were stuck in the city. They, they didn't come out. They had a chance to go and they didn't go. There are people who have a chance to hear the word and will not receive it, okay? Our job is to present. The church's job is to present. And so the Lot's son-in-laws, they didn't go, which... And so Lot took his wife, and he took his two daughters. And it even says that Lot delayed, that Lot still had like a little bit of a tie to this thing that was happening. So it probably would have eventually got to him too, to a point where he might not have been able to be spared. But he, was, he leaves, and they said, come on, let's go. And Lot kind of tarried around, and then they brought him out. And on the way out... Lot's wife, <laughs> of the four that were righteous, Lot's wife, it's, the angel said very clearly, don't turn around, don't look back. Do not look back at what's happening. And there's a whole message in that. But he said, don't look back. And what did wife's, Lot's wife do? She turned around and she became a pillar of salt. And she's still blowing around in the wind out there today. <laughs> in Israel, actually close to the Dead Sea, there is the location, the place where they believe this city of Sodom was. It's, there's a place called Mount Sodom, and it is, there's a, there's a six-mile-long, three-mile-wide mountain that is just solid salt, and it's covered by several feet of earth um, around it, and it's, it's real close to the Dead Sea. And many historians believe like that is the area because there's high sulfur deposits in that soil as well, and you remember sulfur and fire and brimstone were raining down. Pretty fascinating stuff. But my point is, is that there was the opportunity for, for that, um, for them to be spared. And Abraham presents a posture that we need to see in the way he approaches God, in the way he's crying out. We know another example happens in Exodus 32. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. He's on the mountain of God, right? Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. And he's coming down and the people are... Or they, they got impatient while he was up there for his 40 days getting the tablets of the law and the instructions and they made what? A golden calf, an idol and began to worship the idol and it says that the Lord's anger was increased and he was going to destroy the people like he was going to bring judgment and then Moses begins to cry out Lord don't do it 
Now, I love this because Moses, you know that he, he loves the people. Oh, my gosh, this is something we got to get. All right, here's, here's what Moses does. He comes down the mountain, and he's furious with the sin that these people have caught themselves up into. And he throws the tablets down and breaks the tablets of the law. And God had to do them again. He had to redo the assignment. It says the finger of God wrote the law. It wasn't by man that he etched it in there. The finger of God wrote it. So Moses broke those things because he had a righteous indignation for sin. Yet he loved the people because he cried out for the people. You see, the, per- the posture of the church is we can be completely against sin, but we have to love the sinner. Because Jesus was that way. He demonstrated that. We have to separate and understand that people are not sin. That is not their identity. Sin is a condition. It's a sickness and it's a curse that God sent his son Jesus to die to free us from. And we have to see that. We can be, you know, a a righteous indignation. We don't want sin in our society. We don't want it in our culture. But our heart breaks for those who are bound in sin. And we want to see them set free. We don't want to see them punished and suffer. It's not exhilarating whenever judgment comes on people. That, that is not our heart. The Bible even says, look, don't, don't repay evil for evil. Repay evil with good. Love your enemies. Pray for them. In doing so, you heap coals of fire on their head. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll take care of judgment, is what he said. But our heart is for, this, is for the people, just like Moses. And he cries out for the people when he comes down. And the hand of God, the, the judgment of God, it says that he relented from that. He heard Moses' cry. He heard that prayer, and he spared the people. Listen, there's something very important you still have to know about that story. 3,000 people still died that day. 3,000 people were still killed that day for the wickedness and the immorality and the idolatry that they had fallen into. So when judgment is happening, whenever society is decaying to the point where it shifts one way or another, either God's hand comes back on or God's hand comes off, that the righteous are spared and are upheld, but there is still judgment on wickedness. It still comes, and we see that. And then the last thing that I wanted to point out here, um, well, I already said that, is that back to the Babylonian captivity, as you saw that the remnant returned from there. Um, but listen to this. This is what we as a people, and, and we'll say that a remnant in a, in a nation, in a society, in a culture, whose hearts are for God, who want God's hand upon that nation, in times of decay, deterioration, of adversity, whatever, here, here's what we see. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Let this be our heart. It says, if my people, God is speaking here, who are called by my name will humble themselves. See that again? Humility. And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. He's compelling us to pray for our nation. You know, there's something I love about this, and I, I, I really like the fact that we're talking about this for a few weeks, a, a blessed nation, because it, it kind of takes our vision and expands it. I, I mean, I think a lot of times we kind of 
think and we hear the scriptures and we you know, interpret things and we only do a personal application sometimes. But when we are looking at like this message, it's like, this is bigger than me. I mean, I have a, a part, a mandate as a child of God, as a member of the body of Christ. I'm called to pray for people. I'm called to pray for my nation. I actually can do something about this. A lot of times we look around and say, well, that's government. That's, you know, this. That's the laws. I can't do anything about that. Yes, you can. You, the church has always been able to do something about this. The day we forget that is the day we are, we are headed in a very dangerous place. We are always able to do something about it. I said, look, my people will call, humble themselves and seek my face. I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and their wicked ways. And I'll heal their land. Heal the land. There is restoration to the land. Listen to this prayer in Psalms chapter 80. This is a little bit later after. This is Asaph again. Listen, here's his prayer. Verses 14 through 19. Return. We beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and this vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It's being burned with fire and being cut down. It's perishing at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself, and we will not turn back from you. Revive us. Oh, man, I could probably preach for an hour right now on that. <laughs> Revival. <laughs> Revive us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Wow. Restoring the land, the abundance begins to flow. The, the wells that were dug previously begin to open up and flow with water again. The crops are fertile. Everything just is restored to its original place of design. But it was triggered by an outcry. you got to understand that. It was triggered by an outcry of prayer. And here's the thing, guys. Our, in order to pray like this, please... Do not take this lightly. Our hearts have to be pierced for what's happening in order to pray like this in a lamenting kind of way. You don't just go and say, Lord, please, you know, bless the nation or whatever. No. Our hearts have to be, the Bible speaks about rended, torn. (laughs) They have to be rended for what's happening. I many times pray because I, I, it's almost like a, a divine persuasion in the way we pray. I pray, God, please break my heart for what breaks your heart, Lord. Because if you don't, I probably am not going to be able to pray the way that you need me to. I'm probably not going to be able to minister and pastor and, and do what you're calling me to the way that you want me to, God. You're going to have to break my heart the way that your heart is breaking for these situations. And he'll tear that heart. He'll rend our heart for what's rending his. And then we can pray like that. And it's a burden. It's a prayer. It's just, it's got to come out. And we will not relent until we see the shift happen. Hallelujah. And here's what's awesome is that there is a very noticeable shift that occurs when that hand of God comes back upon a people. 
It's a noticeable shift. I already spoke to like the fruitfulness and the abundance of the land, but listen to this. This will build your faith. This is like when people say, why do bad people get away with things? Why good things bad things happen to good people and you know, good things happen to bad people and all that. And listen, I get it. I understand when you're, when you're looking through the eyes of time in a window of a year or a month, it, it can be very confusing. But in the scope of eternity, trust me, it's all going to work out the way God says it's going to work out. And so there's a shift that occurs when the hand of God comes back on upon a people. And it is, he's dealing with sin, and he's purging the evil out of the society, and he is restoring those things which are righteous that we live according to those principles and precepts. Listen, in Proverbs 13.22, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, that doesn't mean that your wealthy aunt or your uncle who you feel like is in sin, you can look at them and say, it's all coming to me anyway. That's not what that means. It does mean that there's a shift that occurs when the hand of God comes upon a people. That there is a shift. That the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. It just means that trust, trust them, those resources, the provision, the abundance of the land, it's going to flow through the hand of the faithful, the diligent, the generous, and those who are living according to God's laws and precepts. And there's a shifting that can happen and take place. Listen to this, Job chapter 27, verse 16 through 17. Here's another one. Though he heaps up silver like dust, this is that person that's building wealth, and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it. The innocent will divide the silver. Listen to this in Proverbs 25, verses 4 and 5. Remove the dross from silver, and a silversmith can produce a vessel. Remove wicked officials from the king's presence, and his throne will be established through righteousness. You see, God says, okay, you want it? You're crying out to me, and when he moves and his hand comes upon a situation, listen, they were in captivity 70 years. They probably prayed, there was probably a remnant crying and praying for 70 years. So when God moves and how this happens, I do not understand, and I don't know, and we can't judge that. That's why we never come out of the place of prayer. We never come out of the place of outcry for God in our nation and for what we want to see him do. We never come out of that, and his hand moves when it moves, you know. But in this particular situation, it shows you how it says that remove wicked officials from the king's presence and his throne is established in righteousness. God is purging evil out of the society. He's purging wickedness as he's moving. And as a result of that, righteousness is being established. Isn't that amazing? Take the dross away from silver, the impurities, and then it can go to the silversmith for jewelry. It's being refined. It's, the wickedness is being purged. And listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I told you we never would have got to the next one today, right? <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 30. I, I wish I could read the whole chapter, but I'm not. I'm just going to read 99% of it. Uh, <laughs> listen, this is what these verses are about is God saying, here's what happens when you or living by my ways, and you're being restored back to a place that you were, here's what's happening. When you don't, here's what's going to happen. It's, it's basically everything we've just talked about with the, the hand coming off or coming on, right? Verse 30 says, It shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing or the curse that I have put before you. So it's a choice, one or the other. Right? There's blessing or there's cursing. 
And we're cursed when we choose to defy God and we go against him, right? It says there's blessing and there's cursing. And then you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today. You and your children with all your heart and with all your soul that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out of the farthest parts under heaven, from, the, from the, there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed. Now listen to this. And you shall possess it. He will prosper you, multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Notice what the priority is. And with all your soul that you may live. Also, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments, which he's commanding you today. The Lord your God will make you abound. Listen, think about the land. Think about the economy. Think about this. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you as a nation uh, for good as he rejoiced over your fathers if you obey the voice of the Lord your God and keep his commandments and his statutes. So you say, you're coming back to this place now. Keep them this time and do them this time. In the book of the law, uh, if you turn from the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now listen to this, verse 11. For this is a commandment which I give you today. It's not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it? But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. The word became flesh. He already came. It's already here. It's not like we have to wait for it, the, the instruction, the direction, the guidance. God's word made flesh. It's right here. And all we have to do is observe it, walk in it, and follow it. And he says later on in these verses, he says that I've put blessing and cursing before you. Death and life. It just means there's evil in the world and then there's my way. There's good. There's blessing and cursing before you. There's death or life. Choose life is what he says. And I would say to us today, right, choose life. We are a people who are the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet. He is the head and we are the body and his power works and flows through us. There is there's no other solution for a nation except God's people to bring his word and bring his message. And they do it not only in word, but in example and in deed. Their lives are lived in a way where their heart breaks for people. Their outcry is to a holy God is the one who does something about it and empowers us to take that message of saving grace to the people who need to hear it. And the land, be, that's revival. <laughs> Revive us. Revival. Widespread. People just coming to the saving faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ at unprecedented levels. Because his hand is just coming upon a nation or it's increasing and his favor and power are increasing. And, and his churches, people are the ambassadors for that. And he's just sweeping across a nation and people are just getting caught up into that. Revival has come so many times. Why not now? Could you imagine if people were giving their hearts 
to Jesus, getting saved, knowing that you're, you know what? You don't have to feel ashamed. You don't have to feel condemned. Jesus loves you. We're all sinners. There's no sin you've done that's worse than my sin. We're all sinners. We all need Jesus. That'll free you and it just causes you to live in liberty the way you're created to live. That He covers you. He makes you clean. He forgives your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. They blots them out so you're white as snow. That's what the blood of Jesus can do. I need it. You need it. We all need it. None are righteous. No, not one. Our righteousness is as filthy rags compared to His righteousness. It says in the book of Romans that our unrighteousness actually demonstrates His righteousness. Because I see how unworthy I am. I see how good He is because He forgives me. Our unrighteousness demonstrates His righteousness. Hallelujah. And the last thing I want to show you is that, this is just so amazing to me, this is, just blows me away, but this whole idea of the remnant crying out to God, come upon our land, God, restore us, be with us, God, hold us up. As the age of time transitions into eternity, this pattern is in place once again. In the book of Revelation, chapter Eight. Where am I at? I'm all over the place here. <laughs> Revelation chapter 8. All right, I'm going to read you six verses. Now, this is during end times. All right, and notice when you see here, well, let's just read and I'll explain. It says that he opened the seventh seal. This was an angel. And there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. There were seven seals, and each one, as each one is opened, something like there's a there's a, a building of things, undesirable, cataclysmic things that are starting to happen in the final years before Christ returns. And it's talking about John's have a vision of angels in heaven, and he's seeing what's going on in the heavenlies during the time that these things are happening on earth. Alright? And so he says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. In Jesus' name. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And then the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now, in the final times, there is an uprising of evil under the headship of Satan and one known as the Antichrist. And as he comes to power, evil and, ramp and immorality and things are going to become rampant at unprecedented levels. But, and the Bible speaks about how those who are, who are in Christ when, before he returns at some point are caught up with him. And so we're caught up in the air with Christ. We believe that's known as the rapture. Most theologians teach that. I believe in that. Um, there's a lot of dispute about like exactly what point of the seven-year tribulation that happens. But So here's the point. The calamity on the earth is significant things are are breaking down in society because the end is near and in this vision 
what he's saying is that the incense, which is the, the incense always, when they burned incense in the temple, it was a symbolic of prayer because the incense would actually make its way into the holy of holies behind the veil in the temple. And they couldn't go back there, but the incense and the prayers would make its way back there. And they believed that the nostrils of God would inhale the prayers in the presence of the Lord. So in the final moments, the incense, it says it's the prayers of the saints who are the saints. It's the remnant that are left on the earth before the end, crying out, God, restore this land, restore this people. God, let your hand come upon, spare us from all this that's happening. They're enduring and holding true to the faith of Jesus Christ, overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, refusing to take the mark of the beast. And they're crying out, lamenting, restore this. And the prayers of the remnant incense rises to heaven. And you say, well, he doesn't restore it. Yes, he does. Heaven and earth, the, 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 the earth... It, God pours out the judgment in all, and there's a mighty earthquake and all these things and we know that all of those who've rejected Christ or all the unbelievers are cast out into the lake of fire. But the final nation, the final one is restored and set in which is God's kingdom for all of eternity and the saints reign with Christ for all of eternity. The remnant, this is what I'm trying to get you to see, as the final new Jerusalem sets in and Christ returns in his eternal nation his eternal kingdom is set up on earth forever is that the prayers of the remnant the cries of the remnant who are on the earth are crying out to God and he's hearing them and he does he moves in that situation saves all of those who are righteous and restores that people folks listen in all things that we've talked about today what my heart is that we see is that there is a war going on in the spirit realm, and we are equipped and called to do something about this. And our prayers, our cries for our nation are reaching heaven. They are making it to the throne of God, to the ears of God. He hears every single last prayer that you've ever prayed with a faithful heart. You say, sometimes I prayed, I don't know if God's listening. Yes, he is. You may not understand his response, but the Bible says he hears the prayers of the righteous. He hears every last prayer that you've ever prayed. And don't you ever think for one second that a single one of them are insignificant. We pray for our lives. We pray for our families. We must pray for our nation. We must believe in a righteous God whose righteous right hand has been upon this nation from the beginning. I believe that with all my heart. We'll stay upon this nation and continue to empower the church and God's people to see this nation blessed for our children, our grandchildren, and all the generations to come until Jesus returns. Amen. Hallelujah.